0: want to right now kind of just steady our hearts and minds as we get ready to open up God's word and, and learn so pray with me Jesus we love you because you first loved us we love you because you first loved us and thank you so much for your love thank you for your love thank you for saving us thank you for rescuing us thank you for dying for us Lord for for the leaders throughout the country Lord um, for President Biden, I pray for a special grace upon his life. I pray that you'd protect him, his health, his, his mental faculties, Lord. And that you'd help him to make good decisions. I pray that, Lord, for all of our leaders, especially the ones we don't like, God. Help them, Lord. Help them. Guide them. They, they need you, whether or not they even realize they need you. And Lord, um, for Vladimir Putin, I pray that you would confuse and frustrate his plans I pray that you would save him. I pray for the peace of Ukraine. I pray for the the church, Lord, um, in Ukraine, in Russia, that it would be a a beacon of hope, a a shining city on a a hill in the midst of so much hurt. And Lord, we think of right now the persecuted church. I'm thinking of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria, because she's a Christian. I'm thinking of Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran, and Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China, and for the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, and Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Eritrea, in the South Sudan, just to mention some of the most hard places to be a Christian today. Please, God, help them. Please, Jesus, help them, and help us To keep praying for them help us to not forget about them as the author of hebrews tells us to remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them please encourage them and strengthen their faith right now and lord i pray today that you'd help us that you'd free us from distraction from from different competing thoughts from anxieties from stresses from pressures from whatever might be going on lord and then we just want to hear from you lord we just want to hear from you. So, like, Help our attention spans right now in this moment. Help me as I handle the word. Protect me from error. Help me to, to only say what you want me to say. And and if there's something, Lord, that you don't want me to say, then, then don't let me say it, Lord. Um, Lord, I do thank you, Lord, for um, all the kindness, all the good things, all the blessings you've given to us. For keeping Diana safe through the pregnancy, for... For little Geneva, Lord, I pray, Lord, for her salvation, for her election, Lord, that she would love and serve you and marry a boy that loves and serves you and that they have children, Lord, that love and serve you and those children have children that love and serve you and that those children have children that love and serve you. That's my prayer for her today. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Guys, we are in the book of John. We're in John's gospel. And uh, if you're joining us for the very first time right now, uh, you should know we love expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the story. A couple of reasons why we do that. Um, number one, it really helps prevent like the preacher from taking verses out of context. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a preacher doing that, taking verses out of context. We don't want to take verses out of context. And number two, it helps maintain the author's intended meaning. And so um, this is going to be the 19th sermon I've preached through John's gospel. We're going to actually, finished chapter 6 today. It only took four Sundays. Uh, Chapter 6 was a beast, 71 verses long, Um, but if you're here for the first time, I'm going to get you caught up to speed Uh, since this is part 19, uh, almost part 4 of 4 of chapter 6. So at the start of chapter 6 in John's gospel, uh, Jesus does the miracle. Uh, He feeds the 5,000, which was actually probably closer to 20,000 when you include the women and the children in the count. And people are flocking to him. His popularity is rising. And then by the end of the chapter, there are actually only 11 people with him. From 5,000 to 11 in one chapter. As Andreas Kostenberger says in his commentary, chapter six ends on this note of failure. By the end of the chapter, almost everyone has abandoned him, and it looks like resistance is winning. It seems like failure. It feels like evil is triumphing. I don't know, maybe some of you guys feel that way today. Sometimes it feels like one step forward, two steps back. In your personal life, in the culture, like Roe versus Wade gets overturned, and then you've got deep red states that struggle to, to get legislation on the books to protect the unborn. One election cycle, you're happy, then the next, you're disappointed. That's how it goes. That's how it always goes. That's how it's going to go. And, and yet, as Mr. Piper points out, whenever it appears that resistance to Jesus is winning in this world, the people of God need a very robust and clear vision of God's sovereignty over all things, including resistance to Jesus. And so we begin, chapter 6, verse 52. It says in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The people who have been following him are now commenting on the previous verse, verse 51, where we left off last week, in which Jesus has just said that he will give for the life of the world, his flesh. And this has really stirred the pot. This is, this is too much for them. And, and now they're, they're upset. They're, they're even angry, you might say, which to be honest, it isn't too unusual because people typically get angry when you say things that they don't like or you say things that they disagree with. And Christians, I think it's really important that we're reminded of this, that we're prepared for this. And that's because our goal is not to make the words of Jesus less offensive or somehow be more palatable or taste better. Our goal is simply to tell people the truth like Jesus told them the truth. And so the people are struggling with what he just told them. Verse 53 and 54, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day this is one of those really important sections of scripture for Catholics uh, because for Catholics uh, what we call communion they call the Eucharist and it means something very very different um, and in what they believe is this thing called transubstantiation where the bread and the, the wine or whatever they're drinking literally turns into his body and his blood, and uh, I was recently listening to a a pastor friend talk about this out in Arizona, and he had shared a story, because he grew up Catholic, and he served as an altar boy, and and every week, as a little 10-year-old altar boy, the priest would be like, don't drop Jesus's body and blood on the floor, and he said, admittedly, as a 10-year-old, I felt like very ill-prepared to be doing this. I'm like, shouldn't we have an adult maybe do this? Like, What if I Ah, uh, that's what he told them every week. And I would argue as, as, as important as this passage is to Catholics, it's even more important for Protestants since, well, we can't both be right in our understanding and interpretation. And so much of the debate around uh, this passage of Scripture, these verses has to do with this main idea being presented. Uh, in, in other words, is the text... Here, in these two verses, is it mainly about the Eucharist, as Catholics teach? Because if it is, if it's mainly about communion, the Lord's Supper, as we would call it, then it would seem to indicate that taking communion is necessary for eternal life. The only problem with that is what we classically refer to in the English vernacular as a contradiction. And that's because... If the main idea is that you have to take communion for eternal life, well, how does that fit with what Jesus just told us back in verse 40, specifically that if you believe you have eternal life, and for the sake of this argument, I don't believe in in these two verses, it has to be an either or type situation where it's either that these verses must refer to communion or or not at all, and that's because I think the Lord's Supper is in view, at least I think it's in view in maybe a secondary way, in so much as it points us to the the gospel, it points us to the atonement, it points us to what Jesus did like on the cross for us. In the same way, it's meant to point us to that truth today when we take communion, but for the people listening to Jesus, this is just, mm mm-mm. This is just too much for them to hear. I mean, listen, let's be real for a second. If, if you came here today and I said after the service, we're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you weren't typically used to hearing that type of language, I imagine you're probably not going to fill out the virtual welcome card. Okay? You're like, I know I shouldn't be doing that church hopping thing. I know I should probably get committed, but I'm going to go church hopping at least one more week after this because that guy's a weirdo up there. See, for these people hearing Jesus say this, this is so utterly abhorrent. It is scandalous. But of course, Jesus doesn't mean this literally in 654. And that's because, as I already mentioned, it would be a contradiction to what he says in 640. But rather what he's saying here in 654 is parallel to, not contradictory, to what he said in 640. That everyone who looks on the sun and believes shall have eternal life. In other words, the the means of gaining life, the the way you have it, is not by literally eating and drinking his flesh, but by seeing and believing. And this is something that they should have picked up on, but they didn't. And so 654 is this clear metaphor that goes back and refers to the seeing and believing in 640. In fact, you you look, I think it's got on the screen, we've got this side-by-side comparison of verse 54 and verse 40 right there they're kind of like there. 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Or as St. Augustine said so many centuries ago, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten eaten and you have drunk and so verse 55 we continue it says for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh drinks my blood abides keyword abides in me and I in him Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, Jesus says, abides in me and I in him. And Jesus uses this phrase, abides in me. And the way that you do this is by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which we know from verse 40 is believing. Believing is how you eat and drink. And if you eat and drink... You abide. And the way this looks, the abiding part of it is when we continue. When we continue with Jesus, it is, to abide in Him. To be identified with Jesus is to abide with Him. When you continue, you abide. When you continue believing, you abide. When you continue repenting of your sins, you abide. So, so let me clarify this for those of you who struggle, maybe perhaps at times with, with your salvation. And the biblical way to think about it, according to verse 56, the Christian life is not marked by momentary faith and momentary repentance. It's big, it's important. But rather, it is characterized by the word abide. And that word means to remain, or as I like to say, it means to continue. Therefore, abiding is continuing. Continuing in the faith and in repentance. That's what it means. And, and despite this very biblical idea of abide in black and white, right there in the text, many Christians have, have come to this false understanding that I can be a Christian because there was one moment, one moment at, at junior high camp that I said the prayer, even though since that time my life has never changed, since that time there has virtually been zero evidence of meeting Jesus, there's been no fruit, and even in some instances I don't even profess to be a Christian. Like, I've gotten in some strong disagreements with family members who want to ignore the words of Christ and the Christian ideal of abiding and replace it for what I call cheap grace. Because that's what it is. Or easy believism, i.e., you say this prayer one time, junior high camp, if you say it, I'll give you a cookie. You said it? Okay, cool. You're safe. Doesn't matter if your life ever changes. But if you say it, you're good to go. When Jesus seems to be saying the exact opposite here in verse 56. And so we continue. As the living Father sent me, Jesus says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It it wasn't like the bread that the fathers ate. Remember in the wilderness and they died? See, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Uh, Biting in Jesus looks like someone who feeds on Jesus. And if you feed on Jesus, you live. You feed on Jesus, you live. As Christ says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Thus, the inverse is also true. If you don't feed on this bread, you're going to die. If you don't feed on this bread, you're going to perish. If you don't feed on this bread, you're going to go to hell. It's true. I could say that it's not and make you feel better. What a terrible thing that would be if I did. This is what verse 57 is getting after. And that is genuine spiritual life cannot exist independent of Jesus. For example, I've had many of these conversations over the last 10 years in which not a single time has someone ever told me that they were doing really, really well spiritually even though they hadn't read their Bible in like the last month. Not a single time in 10 years has someone come to me, told me they were doing really, really well spiritually while neglecting to meet together for the last four or six or eight weeks within the context of the local church. says, I've never heard someone come and say, yeah, I haven't been more in shape and healthy like now, and I haven't even eaten a meal in like the last 100 days. To borrow Jesus's words in verse 58 and yet people think that they can be spiritually healthy while neglecting these vital things it's absurd like it's delusional yet it's encouraged all the time by the church at large in which they'll talk about like their online congregations and, and how many people attended online let me just be really clear there is no such thing as an online congregation Just like there's no such thing of a healthy spiritual life independent of Christ and his bride, the church, or his word, the Bible. See, for John, who's writing this story, he can't fathom any genuine spiritual life that is independent of Jesus. And that's not to say that online sermons aren't beneficial or whatever. But that's a big difference from saying, oh, I watched this online sermon, it was really, really good. And saying, oh, I'm a part of an online congregation. That doesn't exist. So in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Keyword is hard right now. This is a hard saying. And these are his disciples. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? In verse 52, the Jews took a real issue to what he had been saying. But now, by the time we get to verse 60, it's not just the Jews. It's his disciples. It's his disciples now. And to clarify, these disciples are not necessarily Christians. But rather, that that term disciple is being applied to really anyone who attaches himself or herself as a student but it doesn't actually imply anything about the student, the disciple's sincerity or devotion. It's like when a team wins a championship in, in sports. Pick your sport. You always have those people who come out of the woodwork who all of a sudden are fans just because the team won. Because, well, that team is popular and the team is cool. You'll have the Chief fans and the Packer fans or the Georgia Bulldog fans, and they claim loyalty to that team. Maybe they even buy a jersey or a mouse pad or Whatever, right? But they're just bandwagon fans. They're fair weather fans. And in the same way, so are many of these so-called disciples in this passage. And that is because just because you hear what Jesus has to say, it's not enough. See, for these people, they heard what he had to say. But after hearing, they realized that it was just too much of an ask on his part. Revealing that they had not really been given by the Father to the Son nor were they actually drawn by the Father, to borrow the language of verse 37 and 44. And so the disciples say, this is a hard saying. And what's really interesting, because the the Greek word being used here It doesn't just mean hard, like hard to understand. It means harsh or offensive. Like people today, they have no problem with Jesus so long as he's a baby in a manger at Christmas. They've got no problem with Jesus and his message of love for others. They've got no problem with Jesus, especially if he can be a source of health and wealth and worldly happiness. But the second he starts saying hard or offensive things, they're like, I'm out. They don't want any part of that Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the God-King, who regularly would rebuke sinners and regularly would warn sinners of the wrath of God and the reality of hell and that salvation comes only through believing His words. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Verse 62. What if you were to see Him Ascending to where he was before. Now back in verse 38, Jesus spoke of his coming down from heaven. And now he says, what would your reaction be if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And by ascending, he means, what will you think of me when you see me on the cross? And that's because none of them at this point would ever imagine Messiah in this way. The very idea of a crucified Messiah was so outrageous, boring, blasphemous, As 1 Corinthians one twenty three would remind us, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles for Jesus, his path to returning to be with the Father would be degrading and shameful in the eyes of man. And so verse 63 tells us, it is the spirit, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, Jesus, when he's saying this, he's very clear. This guy Judas, he hasn't come to me because it hasn't been granted To him by the Father. So, what verse 65 says. Judas is rebellious. Judas is greedy. Judas is selfish. Judas is not believing. And he literally clarifies why Judas can't come by going back to what he said in verse 44. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. The reality is this happens a lot, more than I, w- I wish it happened. Someone gets saved at Combo, Campus Com, Spiritual Emphasis Week, VBS, Church Summer Camp. What happens? Like, What happened to that person? What happened to you? Some of you have had those conversations with your friends. You're like, what happened to you? Like last semester, like last year, I just saw you like over the summer. What happened? What happened is verse 66. And in verse 66, it revealed that they were just fair weather fans who jumped on the bandwagon, like the seed planted. Not in the good soil, but among the rocks and the thorns. And I'll be—I'll be real. I know this is so hard to see sometimes. Like it's—it's it's one thing when like it happens to like a celebrity Christian. It's another when it's like somebody you know personally. Someone you got close to, someone that you've cried with and you, and you battled in prayer with. It's just gut wrenching. It's part of ministry, and it's so hard. And this is exactly what happened to Jesus here in verse 66. And so it says, verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is very direct with these guys right now. Everyone else has left. And he says, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter says, you know what? We've considered it. We've, we've thought about it. Thought about maybe what it would look like to turn away and walk away from Christ. It was so relevant for today. Like what would it, it look like if I just gave up in, in the war on sin? If I just waved the white flag and surrendered, I still remember what conversation with a good friend of mine. He got to that very, very point in his life. He said, Joe, me and my girlfriend are moving in. I know how you feel. We've worked this out. I've worked this out with God. So please don't bring it up again. I don't want to hear your opinion on this matter any longer. Thus, in Peter's response, we hear him say very clearly, Jesus We've looked at alternatives, we've looked at other possibilities, we've considered different philosophies, different religions, we've considered different views on God, and they all come up short. But today, this is, I think, a very real question that we face, where where will we go? Because everybody goes somewhere, just as everyone worships something, for some they go into the arms of an unhealthy relationship. For others, they they go to join their lots with those who say God doesn't exist. Still, for others, they go to those who say that sin isn't really a serious problem because God is love after all. And and that way they can just justify whatever it is that they want to do that's sinful. Like, some of you are in that position right now. You look at what the Bible says and you're asking, "Can can I go somewhere else? Is there another view of of sin? Is there another view of God? Is there another view of salvation? Is there another place to go to to rescue me from the, the sovereignty of God found in verse 65? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't say hard things. In fact, I usually assume every single person at one time or another will be confused, baffled, or even offended. And yet the question in those moments becomes the question Peter faces in this moment. If we don't go with Jesus, what other legitimate option do we actually have? And my hope is that Peter's conclusion will be our conclusion, and that is, Jesus, there has never been anyone like you. No one's ever taught like you. No one's ever loved like you. No one in the history of ever as Piper would say, our commitment to Jesus is saying, I'm not looking any more for another life, for another world, for another Savior. Jesus, I'm here, I'm yours. And the way that you arrive at that place, how you're brought to this conclusion is not your own intellect or your own work effort. It's, it's God. And that's not to belittle Or say studying or research doesn't matter, but rather it's to put the arrival of this conclusion in the hands of God who helps us. He draws us. He teaches us. As verse 63 just said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And while I think it would be totally appropriate to end the sermon on this note the truth is there are two must, two more verses that must be discussed and you may remember at the beginning at the start of the sermon I said that at times it seems like evil is winning and light is losing let's read verse 70 and 71 Jesus answered them Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so the question that we have to ask after reading verse 70 and 71 is, why does Jesus bring Judas up like this? Like why call him a devil? Why end the story here? Why not two verses ago on this really happy ending with the beautiful line from Peter? Like, where else are we going to go? Because now it seems like we're kind of ending on this depressing note. Like, there is this feeling that the bad guys are winning that the devil is prevailing, which is why I think the final verses of chapter 6 are so critical to help us see the, the fortress of God's sovereignty over sin, when everything else like just feels out of control. When, you, when you're a Thursday morning, at like 3 a.m., your wife gives birth, and you're holding your little girl, and then only moments later, just chaos ensues in the room because they can't stop your wife's bleeding, and she's bleeding internally, and the surgeons rush in and they whisk her down the hallway to the operating room, and you're left for the next hour, you and your little girl, you're just looking at her, wondering if you're going to be a single dad. This is what Jesus wants us to see in these moments where it feels like the darkness is prevailing. Jesus is saying, yes, there is a devil among us. Yes, his name is Judas. Yes, I know he's going to stab me in the back. He's going to betray me, but take heart. I know this because I put him there. He's actually working for me. And that is because for the Christian, there is never an instance where we die accidentally. We leave this world on God's schedule, not our enemies, not the devil's, not anyone else's schedule. As Christ said about his very own life in John 10, No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so I would submit to you, this is the type of rock-solid theology that you need to have. This is what I mean when I say seeing that God is sovereign over all things, even sinful, terrible things. Because if you don't have an understanding, a John 6 understanding, like you're not going to make it, you won't. And so as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And I thank you for this beautiful story with beautiful promises. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a theology uh, of suffering. I pray that you would give us a theology of, of seeing, Lord. Even when it seems like the bad guys are winning, they're not even when it seems like darkness is prevailing it's not oh that we would take courage especially in those final two verses you knew exactly what was happening because it was all part of your plan the hurt the pain the betrayal and the suffering may that give us strength to face the challenges, Lord. May they give us strength to face the challenges in our own lives. We need you, Jesus. We always do. So please help us now. We pray this in your name. Amen.